in every culture on the planet, there's this reciprocity dynamic that if you ask for something and you get it, you owe. And so what we want to do is we want to minimize how much we owe in negotiations. We want to get as much as we can, of course, but we want to minimize how much we owe in return. Welcome, everybody. This is For the Love of Money, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success by sharing the tools, tips, and stories of those who have already made it. My name is Chris Harder, and each week I will bring you incredible guests in order to prove that when good people make good money, they do great things. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another incredible episode of For the Love of Money. I am sitting down with Chris Voss today, once the FBI's top international kidnapping negotiator for years. In fact, he negotiated over 150 cases. How incredible is that? But get this. He has taken all of those different methods that he used when everything was on the line, and he now applies those methods to the business world. And he's going to do that for you today in this episode. So not only will we talk about some of the incredible, exciting cases that he has worked on and obviously ones that you have seen in the news, but we're also going to talk about how to use all of these skill sets in business so that you can come out on top in your negotiations. He loves teaching business now just like I do. And quite honestly, if you're a beginning entrepreneur who's like just getting started all the way up to earning, let's say $499,000 or less, then we have something really special for you that will change your life forever. You see, my wife, Lori, and I and our team created our Fast Foundations Mastermind, which is hands-on guidance put together in a one-stop, five-month journey and is everything that we wish existed when we were just getting started as entrepreneurs. It's everything that is the shortcut That would have saved us so much time and money trying to figure it out like we did. So if you're an entrepreneur and you want to be personally mentored by Lori and I and our team and all of our celebrity entrepreneur friends, including many of the guests that you hear on this show, in person and online for five months, then go check it out. Go to fastfoundations.com. But here's the catch. Over half of the last class renewed for this next one. So it's already half filled up. So hurry over to fastfoundations.com as soon as this episode is over. Fastfoundations.com. If you're an entrepreneur making $499,000 or less, we are going to teach you every single shortcut that we wish people would have shared with us. Now, I'm really excited to sit down with Chris today because when I say he teaches business negotiation, he does it at a high level. We're talking at universities and business schools He's also taught business negotiation at Harvard University. And he's the author of the hit book, Never Split the Difference, where he basically reveals all his secrets that he uses to you so that you can come out on top during all of your negotiations as well. So if you want to learn how to negotiate in business, or if you just want to learn how to negotiate for a better income, or even just in your relationships, or in life in general, then everything that we're about to talk about in this episode is totally for you. So get ready because this episode on fire. Chris Voss, welcome to the show. It's an honor. Chris Harder, happy to be here. Just found out we're neighbors. 
We kind of are, huh? <laughs> Not too far. Well, listen, I always start my show with uh, rapid fire. It's a really fun way for the listeners to get to know you in a hurry. And if something really good comes up, we can circle back around and do a deep dive. How's that sound? You didn't tell me that was going to happen. I know. It's a surprise. I'm trying to, well, let's go You're the it. pro negotiator. I've got to keep you off guard a little bit. You, do, you scare me more than a terrorist. That... <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. All right. We're going to start real easy. I promise. Where'd you grow up? Iowa. Ah, Fellow Midwesterner. Now, I know the answer to this next question, but where do you live now? West Hollywood. And what's your favorite quote? Never take advice from anyone you wouldn't trade places with. Ooh, so good and so logical. What's one of your superpowers? When I turn it on, reading other people's emotions. Ah. What's one of your favorite books outside of your own? The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. Also... The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler. <laughs> Love it. What's one thing you're challenged by right now? Patience. Uh, you and me both sometimes. Uh, what is one of your all-time favorite accomplishments? Wow. Wow, that's a hard one. You know, subtly, um, it, was, it was a real broad, subtle thing. In 2004, when Al-Qaeda was chopping people's heads off and happily putting the videos on the internet very similar in the, to the media, very similar to the way ISIS did in 2012. But in 2004, we got uh, engineered enough of a negative media coverage on them in the Middle Eastern media that they quit doing it because it was bad for business. Wow. How many people get to say something like that? I mean, that's pretty high impact. Yeah, well, it took a, it took a lot of people and it was, a, it was a bloody journey on the way, but we got it turned around. Amazing. Well done. Two more. What's something generous you've done recently? I, you know, and I'm trying to collaborate with a video production company here in town. And we're, trying, we're trying to help them. They're trying to help us. So it's kind of this mutual generosity. I think we're going to have a contest who's going to be more generous to the other side. I love it. It's a great way to get things done. And last but not least, yeah. what are you grateful for today? Just being here. Yeah. Man, that's a great answer. Especially in Southern California here, we're spoiled. <laughs> All right, let's go a little bit deeper. And I actually want to start with um, the fact that you're such a decorated, you had such a decorated career as an FBI negotiator and obviously accomplished a lot over all those years. So growing up, was this like your childhood dream? You know, you wanted to be this FBI agent and have all the success or how did you end up with this as your initial career? Yeah, not in the least. I mean, it, law enforcement actually never even occurred to me until I was in my mid-teens. And then I saw a movie about two police officers in New York City called The Super Cops. And those guys were ridiculously creative, uh, locking up drug dealers in Bed-Stuy in New York back when Bed-Stuy was a really dangerous place. And the community loved them and they did a lot of good. And I was really inspired by that. So, And then I didn't even think about being in the FBI until I was cop in Kansas City for a couple of years. And I, I was getting, based on assignment, I was getting kind of bored. I got interested in federal law enforcement. And, and from, the, from the moment the notion to apply to the FBI occurred to me to the time that I was on board was about a year. I'm a complete novice. Is it difficult to go from law enforcement to FBI? Or if you really apply yourself, can almost anybody land one of those jobs? No, you know... Um, uh, the Bureau is people from all walks of life come in. I mean, there was somebody in a class behind me that had just been had been a school teacher. There was a person in my class that had been a school teacher. 
So the Bureau, the Bureau draws from all walks of life, not necessarily law enforcement. One would think it'd be an advantage to be in law enforcement, but it's really, it's, uh, it's second career, second career professionals. Whatever you, whatever you got started doing for some reason in your 20s, maybe it didn't quite suit you and you decided you wanted to try federal law enforcement with the FBI, which the FBI handles every kind of law enforcement. You go with the DEA, just for drugs. You go with the Secret Service, you stand in a, in a hallway in a hotel and wait for the president to finish his speech. Um, the Bureau does it all. It's, it's a cool place to be. So why negotiation? Was this a natural talent to yours? Or? Uh, um, no, it was not a natural talent in any way, shape, or form. I was on the SWAT team with the FBI, and I had a recurring knee injury, and I wanted to stay in crisis response. I like decision-making. I like people being forced to make decisions by circumstances, which is crisis response. You got to make a call. You can't sit there and wait to see what happens. And so when, when I realized I was eventually going to destroy my knee, I, I figured, you know, hostage negotiators, they always, they're always out there with the SWAT guys, but uh, it can't be that hard. They talk. I talk all the time. <laughs> so I got into it. Famous last words, right? A little, little tougher than you thought, maybe? Yeah. Well, you know, how hard can it be is almost, you know, what, what, they, what they claim is a redneck's last words. Hey, watch this. You know, it's always a little more complicated than what you expect. <laughs> all right. So what's a better question? Telling us, uh, asking you about your first case ever or your craziest negotiation ever? Well, we, the first case ever or first negotiation ever? Yeah, which one, which one do you like telling about better? Well, the first, the first real deal negotiation, I got, I, got, I got really lucky because it was a bank robbery with hostages. And trapping the bad guys on the inside of a bank with hostages is an extremely rare event. It's a unicorn event. I mean... It happens in the movies all the time, but in real life, it happens across the entire country every 10, 15 years. This was a bank robbery with hostages in New York, and it had been 20 years since any bank robbers had got trapped in a bank. And I rolled out. We had a, a team, combined team at FBI, NYPD. The uh, NYPD coordinator, Hugh McGowan, phenomenal negotiator, acted as the team leader. And uh, the FBI uh, leader, uh, Vinnie Piazza, Vince Piazza, handled sort of all incoming to keep, you know, everybody outside of the negotiation operations center. He was kind of like handled the outer perimeter. He ran interference for the negotiation team. And and we blended together. We got the bad guys out. It lasted 12 hours. Everybody lived. I mean, you kind of hit the jackpot. If it really happens once in every 15 years, and that was your first case, that's wild. Yeah, I was uh, I was really lucky. I was I was sitting in the office and um, I was working terrorism at the time, and actually had a fairly important interview related to terrorism schedule. I had my NYPD partner Tommy Corrigan. I said, Tommy, you got to cover for me because uh, another guy came in and says a bank robbery with hostages in Brooklyn. Let's go. And I looked at Tommy and I said, Man, I need you to handle this interview. He said, I got it. And, me and the other guy jumped, jumped in the uh, in the Crown Vic and blasted out to Brooklyn. Were you thinking? I mean, this is your first case as a negotiator, right? So you're thinking, "Oh shit, what did I get myself into?" Or were you thinking, "This is the coolest thing on the planet"? I thought it was cool. I was ready. I mean, I had been. You don't you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to your highest level of preparation. Ah, oh, that's good. So at that time, I had been volunteering on a crisis hotline, which is the best training first for hostage negotiation. It's actually a master class on emotional intelligence. You learn 
how to navigate people's emotions on a crisis hotline. And I had about a year and a half under my belt at that time. And I, I was prepared. I was ready. So I was anxious and I knew the skills applied directly. And so I was ready. I was, I was excited, but I was, I was very dialed in. I was prepared. That's awesome. Now, did you ever have a case that went totally awry? I mean, you used all of your skills, you did everything by the book and, and you could not get this person to come around? Um, the, one of the kidnappings I talk about and never split the difference. It was a second straight kidnapping against a terrorist group in the Philippines that we worked. And we thought we were going to get the hostages out. The bad guys didn't release it, release them. They, they not only double crossed us, they double crossed their negotiator. We read their negotiator dealing with us honestly. And this is what, this is one of the, the things that it transfers directly into the business world too. It's, it's not the decision maker. It's the hidden deal killer behind the scenes you got to watch out for the deal breaker the guy's not coming to the table because his plan is to screw everything up and our the point of contact i was coaching a negotiator talking to the bad guys the bad guys negotiator thought they were going to release and they didn't release and he was legitimately embarrassed our guy had trouble getting him on the phone because the other guy was humiliated that his team didn't back him up he he felt like he'd been humiliated and um, the case drug on for about another month and a half, two months. And then there was a botched rescue attempt that uh, accidentally uh, a Philippine scout rangers stumbled over a terrorist encampment, didn't know hostages were there, and opened fire on the encampment, killed two out of the three last hostages. Oh, man. I can't imagine being a part of something like that. It, uh, it's a gloomy day when you have to make those sort of notifications. I would imagine. All right, so I'm dying to ask, and this is probably such an amateur question, but as a professional negotiator with all this experience that you have, when you walk in to buy a car or buy a home or make a deal <laughs> with me in business, right? Do you walk in with a little extra swagger knowing that you're about to take me to school? Well, I'm not going to take you to school. What I'm going to do is I'm going to figure out how we can make a great deal together. And I'm going to want you, I'm going to want you the deal to turn out both differently and better than you imagined. Because you know the real challenge is implementation. Yes is nothing without how. I can come, and that was one of the things that the, they taught me in the Philippines. We came to an agreement, but we hadn't ironed out how and when the hostages were going to come out, how the deal was going to get implemented. So I, you know, if I take you to school in a negotiation, if I exploit you, if I beat you badly, sometime while the implementation is still going on or in our subsequent relationship, you're going to figure out you got schooled. And you're going to start paying me back. And you're probably going to pay me back at at least a two-to-one ratio. And I don't need that. Um, I need you raving about how great it was to do business with me, not complain about the fact that you got slaughtered in the deal. So that's what I'm really after in the deal. I'm, I'm, you know, I wouldn't call it win-win because that gets you into a whole other dynamic. But we're going to make a great deal and you're going to want to keep doing business with me. That's what I'm after. Let me... Ask for a little bit of a clarification there, because I would imagine when you're negotiating with terrorists, it's got to be a zero-sum game. But when you're negotiating in business, you're kind of laying it out as it's going to have a different outcome than I expected, but a better one than I imagined. So are these two radically different types of negotiations? Not necessarily, because uh, depending upon the situation in terrorists, you're going to face them or their constituents again. You know, we, 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 as, as odd as it sounds, we got repeat customers. So... What you got to live with each and everything you did, and if they get the impression on the other side, 
that dealing with you is a bad idea, then shockingly, they're not going to deal with you or your side. The, uh, the, the first case that we worked in the Philippines, our hostage walked away because we completely stymied the other side, completely stymied. And our hostage walked away, which means they got nothing. They lost everything. And two weeks after it was over, the bad guy negotiator called the guy I was coaching essentially to pay his respects and to tell him that if they ever cross paths again, that he talked to them, that they were okay. And that's where you want to leave every deal. Wow. That's fascinating. I, I guess I have not thought of it positioned that way before. Makes common sense when you finally hear it that way. But you know, you're always picturing this zero-sum game when you're negotiating with terrorists or anything, you know, let's call it a bad guy. And um, the fact that if you truly make it a zero-sum game, then that's going to create a situation where somebody wants to come back and do to you, you know, extra harm or tenfold or whatever it is. Right. So it's much right. better to come out with these, you know, I don't want to call it a win-win. Like you said, you don't want to call it a win-win, but both teams get to save face. Is that a good way to put it? Have a, as shockingly, have a sense of accomplishment from the other side. Yeah. Everybody, everybody's got to have a sense of accomplishment. Otherwise, you, you're leaving landmines for yourself that you're going to step on. Man, that's really cool. All right, so let's talk negotiating skills. A lot of them that you teach in your book, Never Split the Difference. And you talk about, we all have these natural human tendencies that can play into us winning a negotiation. Can you share a little bit about these? Yeah, well, um, the, our natural tendencies, I mean, we're hardwired to collaborate. Some, some kind of way, we've, been, we've had that beaten out of us. But I mean, we got a, we got a hardwire to collaboration. You know, my co-author, our, our co-author, Paul Roz, said, you know, the, the human beings that survived the caveman days were the ones that learned to work together. Uh, those that didn't learn how to work together died alone in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> So there's there's a hard there's both a hardwired na- nature to collaborate, but then we're a little fear driven, we're a little overly pessimistic, because pessimism was also required for survival back then. When there really things that we encountered on a daily basis that could kill us, and the again the optimistic caveman, you know, got got eaten, uh, got bit by the snake that he thought was a rope. So we we've got to we got to try to seek out our collaborative nature, but at the same time not letting our natural pessimism get in the way. And as soon as you start hearing somebody out, you don't have to agree with them. And there's a fine line between understanding and agreement. If you can make a distinction in your mind of the difference between understanding and agreement, then what happens is the other guy's fears go away and, and their they're hardwiring to collaborate starts to leap into place. And now you can make a great deal. That's incredible. So, Now, what's the single best lesson that we need to learn when it comes to negotiating with other humans and these human tendencies? Well, one of our, uh, one of our sayings is the secret to negotiation is the art of letting the other side have your way. Ooh, I like how you phrase that. <laughs> Expand on that a little bit. Well, you got to get the other side talking. Most people want to talk first. They're afraid that if there's an expiration date on their ideas. And if they don't blurt them out, their ideas are going to disappear. Well, the other side's feeling the same way. Now you get the other side talking, and then in a really gentle way, you kind of let them know what will work and what won't work. And when they throw something out there that you like, that'll work for you, you go, brilliant, that's a great idea. Now the subtle key to that, why that makes it so successful is 
since it was their idea, they're going to love it. They're going to remember it. And since they felt it was your idea, you don't owe them anything. Mm, so there's no, there's no reciprocity that kicks in. Robert Cialdini wrote a great book called The Psychology of Influencing. And he says in every culture on the planet, there's this reciprocity dynamic. That if you ask for something and you get it, you owe. And so what we want to do is we want to minimize how much we owe in negotiations. We want to get as much as we can, of course. But we want to minimize how much we owe in return. It's brilliant. So you're literally making it think it or making them feel like it's their win, their idea. And therefore, you don't owe them anything, but you kind of got your way. Yeah, you got your way and they're going to implement like crazy when it was their idea. This is incredible. Okay, now the flip side question. What's the biggest mistake that people typically make? Um, it, well, going first and making your, make your case first. Like I got to go first. I got to make my case first. And one really huge mistake that the, the academics, uh, and, I, and, I, and I differ extremely from my academic practitioners, they'll say go first and go high. You know, move the zone of possible agreement, if you will. Mm-hmm. Now, what that does, the real serious practitioners, the majority of them, not all of them, the majority of them, because there are some people that are very successful. They want to go first and they want to go high. And they don't have any long-term partners. But the great negotiators in the world, the Oprah Winfrey's, the Warren Buffett's, they want you to go first because they want that information. Warren Buffett wants you to lay out what your plan is because he knows your ideas are a tremendous source of information. He wants that information. Negotiation is really about the gathering of information. So if you let the other side go first, you're the one who's downloading the information. They're not learning anything while they're talking. And if knowledge is power, then if you let them speak, then you're gaining power every second they speak. Mm, that's awesome. I mean, it's, I've, I've been taught that in sales even. So I guess it's kind of the same thing, right? Sales is negotiations. And the more you can get them talking, the more they're going to reveal their hot buttons and the more they're going to reveal yeah. what's important to them. And that's evidence yeah. that you can use to kind of win your case, so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. And if you're talking, you don't get any of that information. What if you're trying to get them to talk and it's just crickets? And, you know, that'll come up some. And so, you know, we get, there's, there's an emotional intelligence approach for that. And I get, I'm, I got to wear you down. If there's crickets, your guard is on high. If there's crickets, you don't trust, you don't trust easily. You don't trust me. Now, we now know from neuroscience that all the practices and hostage negotiation are backed up. Backed up. But if, if I know that you feel like you don't trust me, I'm going to simply say, you know what? It seems like you don't trust me. Oh, you're going to just call it out right there? Call it out lightly and gently because we've learned from neuroscience that calling them out, not denying them, just calling them out will slowly begin to erode what they are. Wow. That's really good. There's another thing I wanted to ask you about. And I can't remember if it was your TED Talk or somewhere that I saw you talk about this, but you once talked about weapons-grade empathy or (laughs) tactical (laughs) empathy. Can you share a little bit about this? Because it was fascinating to me. Yeah, well, the first thing, I mean, people, most people think empathy is this warm and fuzzy, give them a hug skill, oh, I feel bad for you. You know, it's sympathy. It's often equated with sympathy and compassion. You know, and the fine line is, 
it's a empathy is a compassionate thing to do, but it's not compassion per se. Now, since we know, again, from neuroscience, and we started looking inside the brain just really over the last five or six years, since we know how the brain works, we've gone from speculating with psychology to knowing with neuroscience. Now that I know how the brain works, why don't I apply, why don't I apply that knowledge tactically? And this goes directly back to the calling out the negatives. They ran a brain scan they, where they, they're watching uh, exactly where they know where the negativity in the brain lives. It's a three quarters of the amygdala. The amygdala is an organ in the brain. They know where it is. So they induce negative emotions with people by showing them pictures that make them sad, lonely, angry, unhappy. Whatever the negative emotion is, it evokes this emotion in their head. They watch that part of the brain light up. And then they simply say, what are you feeling right now? And when the person identified it, just called it out, called out the elephant in the room. Every single time with the mere identification, the electrical activity in the negative part of the brain drops. So this is a tactical application of neuroscience knowledge. If we know how empathy works, we know how the brain works, why don't we just take advantage of the fact that we now know how things work? And that's what really what tactical empathy is about. That's really cool. That's amazing. So what role does generosity play in negotiations is there this this idea that you know if i give you x i i can expect you to give me y in return or does it not play a role in negotiations now generosity as an attitude is is a solid is a solid move to make for a variety of reasons man i'm not sure i can list them all first of all if you're in a generous mood yourself you're in a positive frame of mind and we know from Harvard psychologist Sean Acker that if you're in a positive frame of mind, you're 31% smarter. Oh, wow. So just being, you know, this, this Southern California cliche of I'm so grateful today, mm-hmm. you know, to be in a grateful or a generous mindset, you're actually smarter. And when you're smarter, you're more capable. And we also know that there's something in our counterpart's brain called mirror neurons and if I start exuding, if I start projecting smile, tone of voice, body language, generosity, gratitude, I'm going to hit your mirror neurons and it's going to cause an involuntary trigger and it's going to increase it in you. If I have a generous attitude, I'm going to get your generosity started simultaneously, which works for me if I want a collaborative deal. You're going to be smarter and you're going to be more inclined to collaborate with me. So as long as you don't Allow yourself to be taken hostage by the need to have the process work and just kick the process into gear. You're going to be better off. That's awesome. That's really cool. It plays a role in it. I can't help but ask this as well because we talk a lot about generosity on the show. And I can't help but think that every charity head and every fundraiser needs to learn these tactics, especially if they're galas as they're raising money and all that stuff. Have you ever taught these to a charity in order to raise more money? Not per se. The cool thing we're finding out about it, the book as time goes on, more and more people are using it as like their secret weapon. Like there's a lot of people out there because there's a stigma in negotiation books, especially one that has a relatively aggressive title, that you're trying to exploit the other side, mm-hmm. which you're not. You're trying, to ex- you're trying to create a great collaboration to defeat a problem. So 
one of my one of my babbling on about is I have no doubt that there are a lot of people out there in uh, in the public sector and fundraising and, and you know for the better good of mankind professions that are using it. Yeah. So what was the moment you decided to leave the FBI and actually start teaching this in the business world to and to the public sector and to write the book? Well, I started dabbling with it um, to get the FBI program better. Uh, I approached Harvard Law School, Harvard, uh, see if they would collaborate with us. And that was back in 2004. We found out that we were really on the same sheet of music in terms of what empathy was and how we were trying to apply it. And so they invited me in to, to attend uh, you know, their, key, uh, their cornerstone negotiation course as a student, go through as a student, soak up as much as I can. Uh, we were on the same sheet of music, com- complete agreement and ideas. And at about the same time, things inside the FBI, I started getting, you know, signs from the university. It was time for me to move on. And last time I'd gotten those kind of signs, you know, one door closes and others open, you know, doors were closing on me. It was time to move on. I'd been there long enough. And so I got out and um, right after I got out, the Harvard guy said, hey, you know, you're in town. Why don't you come teach with us? Uh, We dig what you do. We're, you know, you, you, we already agree that we're doing the same thing. This, it's only the circumstances, stakes that are different, but it's the same dynamics. And so I went back and I taught as part of their staff. And, and that's when I knew that, you know, full speed ahead, this applies to everything. And that's kind of was what the birth of the book was? Yeah, it really was. Who's the book for? I mean, who should really be grabbing this thing? You know, uh, if you genuinely want to make better deals and have better relationships regardless of the circumstances. And so it's kind of an across the board thing. I mean, I've had, there was this uh, woman who's a senior executive in Silicon Valley. She caught her husband using it on her. So she went out and bought copies of the book for her girlfriends, boyfriends, and husbands. (laughs) That's crazy. That's awesome. You teach, obviously, you've got a firm that works with business quite a bit now. Do you have an example where an entrepreneur or business person just absolutely came out far more ahead than they would have had they not used some of the things that you teach? Yeah. And we got these guys coming into the training we give all the time. We had, um, we actually coach people out of deals sometimes if we smell that the deal is a sucker deal. You know, there's an old saying, there's a favorite and a fool in every situation. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know who the fool in the game is, it's probably it's you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there are a lot of negotiations where you're just a fool in the game. They want you, they're, they're trying to exploit you for free consulting. They never intend to play, pay you or they need you as a competing bid. And he had a, he had a counterpart that we strongly suspected was exploiting him for both, both free consulting and to drive the deal with somebody else. And he'd been struggling with this deal for about 18 months. He came to us, um, my guy, Derek Gaunt. Derek is a coach in our company, superstar coach. Derek smells that he's a fool in the game and Derek coaches him out of it and has got him out of it. The next meeting, a week later, the other side admitted they were never gonna give him the deal. Oh man, and you guys saw it coming. We saw it coming. We got him out of it gracefully. You don't, you don't, you don't terminate relationships or angrily uh, terminate gracefully and then he repackaged his deal uh, the better deal came along there's always a better deal out there for you if somebody's wasting your time mm-hmm. the better deal came along he ended up with double the profit wow that's all, and that went to happen without working with you guys 
if we hadn't got him out of that deal, he might still be chasing it. Or he, you know, another six to 12 months, you know, he'd got the notification that somebody else won the bid. And then he'd have been devastated. He, he'd have felt out of control. He'd have felt blindsided. Plus, he'd have wasted all that time. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that ever would have happened at that, at that quickly. We accelerate business. It wouldn't happen that quickly for him without us. Yeah, that's a great way to phrase it too. Like your skills accelerate business and accelerate the level at which things are going to turn out in your favor. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, turning to the book is one way that we can learn a lot more of these things. And just to remind everybody, where can they find Never Split the Difference? You know, I can tell you something. Buy it on Amazon. It's, you're going to get the best price. I mean, I'm, I'm buying copies on Amazon constantly. If we got to buy 50 copies, we go to our publisher. But when I got to buy anywhere from two to five, I mean, I buy it on Amazon. Amazon's got a great price. All right, awesome. I never split the difference on Amazon. But more importantly, if we want to learn you know, some more tactical things from you that aren't in the book, where can we follow you? Where can we get some more of this? Yeah, we got tons of free content. And the gateway to all of it really is our newsletter. We got a weekly newsletter. It comes out on Tuesday mornings. It's concise. It's not one of those newsletters. There's so many choices. You don't know what to read. You're going to get one concise, actionable article, and then plus you're going to get notifications about other free stuff that we have, training that we have. There are links to our website. It's the gateway to everything that we do, and it's a there's a simple text to sign up function to get signed up for the newsletter. And what's that? How do they how do they get it? You text the number you text to is twenty two eight twenty eight, and again that number is two two eight two eight, and the message you send to twenty two eight twenty eight. Is FBI empathy all one word? Your spell check's going to want to put a space between FBI and empathy. You know, delete the space. FBI empathy all one word. Send that to twenty two eight twenty eight. You get a response back. You supply us with your email address, and then you're off to the races. We got, like I said, we got a lot of free content. It's awesome, Chris. I'm going to make sure that we put that in the show notes. So I got one more question for you, and it's this: Typically, I ask people, give me a reason why. People should be unapologetic about their pursuit of success, but I'm going to tweak it for you. I'm going to ask you, give me a reason why people should be unapologetic about their pursuit of winning. Yeah, you know, I mean, whatever your mission is, you know, everybody's got a mission. Everybody's got a purpose here. We're going to help make the planet a better place. You know, if you're aligned with your purpose, then you need to win. You need to, you need to bring what it is that you have to the world so that you can help other people. You can help yourself make a better life for yourself, for your children, for your spouse. You live in a better house. But to do good, you have to be successful. I mean, money is required to implement great things on the planet. It's, It's rocket fuel. You know, pigs get slaughtered. If you're too greedy, now you're counterproductive to what your purpose on the planet is here. But you have to win. You have to be successful in order to, to bring your gifts to the world. Mm, Chris, I love that, man. I couldn't agree more with you. I, I really can't. So listen, I want to thank you for not only sharing some of the very practical how-to, but just for all the content, especially the free content that you pump out on a regular basis. Because this is stuff where if people are struggling in deal making, if they're struggling in their business, if they're struggling in negotiating with their employees, they're significant. Like This applies to everybody, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Well, I can't thank you enough for the fact that you pumped so much free content out there and, and that you're willing to take the time to jump on here today, man. Yeah, it was cool, Chris. Thanks for having me on. I, re- I, really, uh, I really appreciate it. Totally my pleasure. 
Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.